0: You're listening to the Table Church podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors and serve those in need. Find us at the Instagram or Facebook. And now for the message. We're doing Genesis 3, and like I said, if you've ever had a question about what's going on in the world, this is really the answer. You got the recap for Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 that God creates, and God places us in the garden. God creates us outside the garden, places in the garden to be co-rulers with God, royally divine, equal in worth and work to one another, and then everything gets messed up. You probably know. Everything feels messed up, right, in the world today, in the world around us. Uh, as always, if you have any questions or answers to questions that I pose, please send the text, and I'll do my best to answer those and take a look at those at any time. Here's some questions that I would come up with and that I'm not going to cover today is this. How do our Jewish cousins understand this passage? Uh, this is, we're reading the Jewish Old Testament. They have different understandings of these passages. Why curses? What's up with the serpent? Is it a serpent? I'll just tell you. There's one. There's one 1700s uh, scholar who thought it was a monkey, but he has he's he's wrong. Um, there's an angel with flaming sword at the end. What kind of fruit? We're titling this Paradise Lost. And I love memes. My favorite thing in the whole world is memes. I know this is really just a tweet, but it's this. Humans really could have had a beautiful little existence on Earth, creating art eating fruit, instead we have credit scores and taxes, right? Like, <laughs> does that feel real? That's real. And it's like, today's passage tells us exactly why we have credit scores and taxes, and we're not creating art and eating fruit. Like, that's what today's passage is, Genesis 3, 1 through 24. We've been going through whole chapters. We don't plan to do that every week, but there's just so much in these passages uh, that I think we need to kind of walk through them and glean what's going on in them. So our passage begins this way. The snake was the most intelligent. The word there in Hebrew is arum; room. It just means wise. And later in the Bible, the, 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 the authors will tell us that we need to seek after a room. We need to seek after wisdom. Uh, and so here we have this snake being the most intelligent. Old translations would say crafty. Of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? First time in the Bible that someone is talking about God. First time in the Bible that someone is thinking about God's words. Really, we would say this snake is the first theologian because they're thinking about God, but in, in a negative way. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? God didn't say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden. God said you can eat of any tree in the garden except one. And we talked last week about how that's a boundary. It's not a bad thing. It's a boundary. The woman said, the woman didn't hear God's word. The woman got relayed the word from Adam. The woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. God did not say, and don't touch it. That's been added by her, supposedly, She got bad advice from the man, which I know, some women in here, I don't know if that's ever happened to anybody, but that's not what God said. God just said, don't eat from it. So already, things are getting mixed up. We got a snake being wily, being crafty, being wise, and notice it... it, There isn't, it's not an intense temptation moment. It's a snake being snaky. I don't know how snakes are. It's enticing. It's a question. It's not overbearing. It's not overpowering. It's it's planting a, a seed, a question, a bit of doubt, and saying, Did God really say that? Is that what God really said? And then she relays the message incorrectly. The snake said to the woman, You won't. Die, god said on the day that you decide to break this boundary surely you will die and the snake says you won't die and guess what the snake is correct because i think because the snake knows the graciousness of god but the snake is correct you won't die God knows that on the day that you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God knowing good and evil. This is a huge key in this passage. In Genesis 1, God creates humanity and God says, let us make humanity in our image and in our likeness. And so what we see being perverted here is not that we're made in the likeness of God, but now we want to be like God. There's a difference between being made in the likeness of God and being God-like. Do you see the difference? Of, uh, one is, is this beautiful thing that God gives to us, that we are these royally divine creatures, the pinnacle of creation. And the other one is that we want to start encroaching in on God's place and on God's power. God-like, like God versus the likeness of God. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful. This is an echo back to Genesis 2. The first thing that God calls beautiful are the trees. And so she sees the trees are beautiful with delicious fruit, food and that the tree would provide wisdom. Remember, a room? Wisdom. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and also gave some to her, her husband who was with her. That part of the story gets left out Pretty much every time anybody ever tells this story, he's standing right there the whole time. I'm the only one that's blown away by that. Okay, you guys. And he ate it too. And he ate it too. And he ate it too. It wasn't like. He got made and God said, don't eat from this tree. And, and, then, and then the woman gets made and he goes, hey, we're not supposed to eat from that tree. And then she's off by herself and the snake's like, you should totally eat from this tree. They're both standing there. The word in Hebrew is imah, who was with her the whole time. Like, I I don't know who to be. Like, we usually in our culture, and have for thousands of years, put the onus on women of like, they got deceived. uh, There's a a weakness about them because of the nature of their sex. That's not present in the text at all. If anything, she didn't get the word from God. She got the word from her husband. Her husband heard it directly from God's mouth. And he's... She gets deceived by the craftiest of all wild animals, and he eats it because she was like, hey, you want some? Like, he heard it from her, he heard it from God. And she was just like, it's pretty good. And he was like, okay. <laughs> like, if anything, like, I, I see strength in her and weakness in him, but uh, you take it, you can read it differently than me, that's fine. That's the setup. Really, this is, is the problem. It, so just some points before we move on is that the snake's crafting wise. Is he right? He really is right in the sense God won't kill them right away. There's, a, there's something that happens. Their, their sentence gets commuted. God extends God's graciousness to these creatures whom he loves. And so the snake plants this idea and he relies on the goodness of God to just just kind of make people doubt a little bit and also encourage them into taking up some of the space of God. The snake is crafty, is wise. Wisdom is good. Like I said, we're told to seek after wisdom and later, but there's a difference. Love plus wisdom, I think, makes for good leadership. The snake is not using his wisdom for good. Wisdom minus love is selfish manipulation. That's what's going on in this passage is that this snake is manipulating the situation because there's a lack of love. And if I have to be honest, and maybe I'm going on a little side here, one of the things I want to communicate about the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that in my mind growing up, it was, it was bad. It was a bad thing. And as I've studied more and more and i read the old Christians, they didn't, never said it was bad. In fact, everything in God's creation, God called good. Everything there was good. And so what the early Christians believed about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that it was reserved for a later time. That they needed to grow in love first before they could receive the wisdom. But they wanted the wisdom before the love. And that's where they get in trouble. We talked about this. Made in the likeness of God versus trying to become God-like. That is a huge issue. And and you could see how those words get twisted. And, And we are supposed to live in this likeness that we have, these divine creatures that God has made us. We're supposed to really live into that but that means something entirely different than being godlike, And so it's a tension that we hold, but it's a trick that Satan wants to use to get us all mixed up. You're going to have to, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You get it, right? That's, a, every, i t- I just tired of typing it. I said this, isn't bad, but it also isn't ready for them. It reminds me of a kid driving. If my 11-year-old or my 8-year-old took off with my car down the road, I would be furious not because driving's bad but because them driving is bad right like definitely no my especially my five-year-old he'd be the one right he'd be like i've seen dad do this before he'd be this kid just like it's not bad they're not ready for it so that was been a huge change in my mind and it began to make me think differently about uh, what wisdom is Uh, god's timing in my life Uh, god trying to grow me and transform me in love and grace before uh, giving me wisdom and insight and knowledge because there's a way in which we the, the new testament says we can be puffed up with knowledge right love builds up but knowledge puffs up and so there's a way in which when we can try to acquire too much knowledge too quickly without the those other good things in our life it gets things out of balance and out of whack Lastly, as I said, this passage has been used to oppress women. I don't see it. And we're going to get into this some more. Uh, But man, like, Adam should have known better. And he didn't. Let's move on with our passage. So, what happens when they eat of this fruit? By the way, not an apple. Most of the time in our culture, we see it as an apple. It never says that. So, it could be an apple, but it never tells us what kind of fruit it is. Not ever once. We want to know. We think we we can read into it. The text has no desire to tell us what kind of fruit it is. I think it's something gross. You know what I mean? Like a pomegranate or something. Or, Or some kind of grapefruit. Like that would definitely wise me up a little bit. Does not tell us. But they both eat of this thing. And they saw clearly and knew that they were naked. This is really the only result of their of their eating of this thing. So they realized that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. I really see that there's a childlike state here. They weren't ready. They weren't ready for the wisdom. And so now they realize that they're naked and and they have the ability to discern good and bad and they're ashamed of their nakedness because they realize that now you can make judgments about my nakedness. Uh, being naked is uh, embarrassing sometimes, and so there's this there's this concern that in knowing good and evil that you can make judgments on one another, and they are ashamed of their nakedness, and they begin to sew fig leaves together and make garments, make clothes for themselves. During that day's cool evening breeze, this is one of my favorite pictures of God. I'm not a morning person, not in the least bit, but one of the first pictures of God is that God's walking around in the evening. I'm like I could. I can go for a walk with God. Everyone's like, you got to be a morning person. If you're going to be a holy person, holy people rise early. And I'm like, I don't know. God was walking around in the cool evening breeze. I love it. Thank you. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord. Remember that. In the middle of the garden's trees. God called out to them and said, this is really one of those tests in the Bible. How do you hear God's voice? God says, where are you? Do you hear God saying, where are you? What do you hear God saying? Where are you? This is a, a Rorschach test if you, you know the phrase of like your picture of who God is. God calls out to them, where are you? The man replied, I heard your sound in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Remember this. And he said to them, and this is a verse that lives rent free in my head all the time. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? I think about it in all kinds of contexts. Who told you that you were naked? When I think about getting embarrassed, when I I, I feel that feeling of shame, I, I hear God say, Who told you you were naked? God pinpoints exactly what's happening here. Did you eat from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? And here's what the man says. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. It's a double blame game. It's not me, it's the woman's fault, and it's your fault because you gave me her and she gave me the fruit. Double blame immediately. And so the Lord said to the woman, What have you done? And she said, the snake tricked me. So she can't blame her husband, but she could blame the snake and, in a sense, God, the creator of the creatures, right? It's the snake. She's a little more subtle, which tends to be the case, right? That She's just like, I'm going to get my point across, but I'm not going to be like, you made the snake. But she blames God, in a sense, as well. And then God turns to the snake and does not even give the snake a chance to answer just starts pronouncing curses the lord said to the snake because you did this he doesn't say what did you do snake just immediately let's get into some points what is the result of their sin what happens to them in their disobedience anybody want to call it out go for it there's probably four answers yeah they do get kicked out of the garden yeah that's definitely coming that is definitely a result of their disobedience good job They realize that they are... That they're naked and afraid. You'll be happy to know that your pastor has never once seen that show, but I know about it in the cultural zeitgeist. So that's the first one. They realize that they're naked and they're afraid. They hide. And the second one is... They get full of shame and begin to blame. And this is where this... Blame shame game begins for us. In their sinfulness, in their disobedience, in their fear, in their nakedness, in their being filled with shame, they began pointing the finger at one another. Whose fault is it? I don't know if that's you, Uh, that's me. I love to blame people immediately. Like it's just so easy for me, which is why this video resonates with me. This is a psychologist named Brene Brown. I appreciate her immensely. And she talks about um, blame, blaming. I will tell you in the middle of it, she uses a minor curse word that I edited out for you all. So when you hear it, you'll know, but just, you know, keep things kosher since we're talking about sin. Here's Brene Brown on blame.
1: How many of you are blamers? How many of you, when something goes wrong, the first thing you want to know is whose fault it is? Hi, my name is Brene. I am a blamer. (laughs) Let me just tell you this quick story. So this is a couple years ago when I first realized the magnitude to which I blame. I'm in my house. i have on white slacks and a pink sweater set, and I'm drinking a cup of coffee in my kitchen. It's a full cup of coffee. I drop it on the tile floor. It goes into a million pieces, splashes up all over me and the first, I mean, a millisecond after it hit the floor, right out of my mouth, is this. Dang. you, Steve? (laughs) Who is my husband? Because let me tell you how fast this works for me. (laughs) So Steve plays water polo with a group of friends, and the night before, he went to go play water polo. And I said, hey, make sure you come back at 10, because you know, I can never fall asleep into your home. And he got back like at 10.30, And so I went to bed a little bit later than I thought. Ergo, my second cup of coffee that I probably would not be having had he come home when we discussed. Therefore. And so the rest of that story is, I'm cleaning up um, the kitchen. Steve calls, caller ID. I'm like, hey. He's like, hey, what's going on, babe? (laughs) What's going on? So I'll tell you exactly what's going on. (laughs) I'm cleaning up the coffee that spilled all... Like dial tone. (laughs) Because he knows. How many of you go to that place when something bad happens, the first thing you want to know is whose fault is it? I'd rather it be my fault than no one's fault. Because why? Why? Because it gives us some semblance of control. But here, if you enjoy blaming, This is where you should stick your fingers in your ear and do the na-na-na-na thing because I'm getting ready to ruin it for you. Because here's what we know from the research. Blame is simply the discharging of discomfort and pain. It has an inverse relationship with accountability. Accountability, by definition, is a vulnerable process. It means me calling you and saying, hey, my feelings were really hurt about this, and talking, it's not blaming. Blaming is simply a way that we discharge anger. People who blame a lot seldom have the tenacity and grit to actually hold people accountable because we expend all of our energy raging for 15 seconds and figuring out whose fault something is. And blaming is very corrosive in relationships, and it's one of the reasons we miss our opportunities for empathy because when something happens and we're hearing a story, we're not really listening we're in the place where I was, making the connections as quickly as we can about whose fault something was.
0: That was helpful for me as a blamer because I really resonate when she said, I would rather it be my fault than nobody's fault because it gives me a semblance of control. It gives me a semblance of uh, how to direct that discomfort and that frustration and that anger. And I really see that that's what's going on in this passage and in these passages is that they have this newfound sense of their shame and their nakedness and they need to let it out and they do it in a way that's corrosive and frustrating and breaking and disconnecting to one another. If you want to know where shaming and blaming happens, it happens here in this passage. This is where it begins. In fact, the early Christians think that this is where death enters into the world. Sickness enters into the world. Evil enters into the world. Our our fallen state really enters into the world. This is where really the bad stuff of our world takes hold. Let's move on in our passage. The Lord God said to the snake, because you did this, you are cursed. God is going to hand out some curses here, but only to the ground and to the snake, not to his royally divine created creatures called humans. But he's going to curse the snake, and he's going to say, you're going to crawl on the ground, and you're going to eat dust. And he says, I'm going to put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and they will strike your head. Important, remember this. But you will strike at their heels. And, the woman sa- and he said to the woman, I'll make your pregnancy painful. In pain, you will bear children. If you want to know where menstruation cycles began and where painful births began, this is where the Bible tells us it begins. But also it says you will desire your husband and he will rule over you. Desire here is only used a couple times in scripture. We're going to talk about it in the next chapter as well with Cain and Abel. But it means to control. And so where we had these two human beings, that were equal in worth and work. They had the same job and the same worth. We get now disconnection where they both want to control one another. Remember that God-likeness that they were seeking after when they ate the fruit? Not being made in the image of God, the likeness of God, but now they want control over each other. And to the man, he says, all your work is going to be frustrated. The amount of work that you put in, you are not going to receive back as much as you get, which I think we all know that happens. The land is going to be cursed You're gonna eat from it every day by the sweat of your brow. Weeds and thistles are gonna grow, right? By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread. This is the disconnection. The man names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living things. His name is human. Her name is life. This is the story about human life in scripture for us. And the Lord God made his man and his wife, uh, he made them leather clothes and dressed them. Again, we see the graciousness of God clothing his beautiful creatures, even though they have disobeyed. And he kicks them out of the garden, sends them east of Eden, and they got to go out. It says, he drove the human to the east of the garden of Eden, and he stationed a winged creature, a giant angel wielding a giant flaming sword, which is easily the coolest thing that happened in the first three pages, to guard the way of the tree of life. This is the end of the passage. This word guard here was what we were supposed to do to the garden. We were supposed to serve and protect. Remember last week? It's the same word. Now there's a winged angel with a flaming sword protecting the garden, taking over our job because we have fallen. What is the result of their sin? Disconnection from God, disconnection from each other, and disconnection from their job and creation. It's a threefold breaking. It's broken this way. It's broken this way. It's broken this way. Everything gets broken here. Everything gets broken. I usually preach head, heart, hands, but this passage is too big, so I'm not giving you three points. You get six points, but I'm going to go very fast, I promise. Uh, First, what this passage wants us to know is that there is real evil and an evil one in the world. We will be tempted to not live into our vocation. We'll be tempted to not live into our closeness to God. We'll be tempted to try to control one another and dominate one another. And that's what this evil thing is getting us to do, is to sow chaos. Remember, the world was chaotic and disordered, and God made it ordered, and he he wanted us to help do that in the world. And this evil thing is to create chaos and disorder and cause these disconnections and this division. This is real. This is in our life and it doesn't happen through some demon appearing before you and trying to force you to do something you don't want to do. It starts with a question, an implantation of an idea that maybe you can handle things better than God. Maybe they're the ones to blame for the bad stuff in your life and so I'm going to treat them less than what God has called me to. It starts with an idea. But we learn from Jesus some things about the devil. The devil, Jesus says, was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar and the father of liars. 1 John 3 says the devil has been sinning since the beginning. So we shouldn't be surprised. We get this in the beginning of the story, and it's here now. What's the second point? Uh, this passage cannot be used to make women second-class citizens. It has, and I just don't think it's there. And here's why. Before the eating of the fruit, they were equal in worth and worth. That's present in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. All the language is used about the man is used about the woman. In Genesis chapter 1, they're created at the same time. Likeness and image of God in Genesis chapter 2. They have the same vocation to serve and protect creation. They are made from God breathing into them and divine beings. Same job. We, we went over last week about what Ezer Ka-Neged means. If you want to go into that, you can. Inequality between us is the result of sin and the fall. What was the curse pronounced? Is that we were going to get disconnected from the land and the creation. And then we see for women and men that there was going to be a desire to rule over one another. Inequality is the result of, of disobedience, of sin in the world. And we know that Christ redeems us. Here Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God caused the one, Jesus, who didn't know sin, to be sin for our sake, so that through him we become the righteousness of God. There was something that happened in Genesis 3. There's an inequality, there's a fighting, there's a frustration, but Jesus redeems us from That's the whole point as Jesus is coming to redeem us from the fall, from the disobedience, the thing that happened with the eating of the fruit. Third point, Jesus is the new humanity with a new creation. That Genesis 3 passage that we just read every verse of does not divine define our existence because Jesus has come. A couple passages. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so also everyone will be given life in Christ. Early in the morning, I love so... Whew. I try to say this every Easter, and it never comes out, and I just got to tell you one more time because we just did Genesis 3. But on Resurrection Sunday, on the first Easter, Jesus is out of the tomb. Mary comes early in the morning on the first day of the week. This is Genesis language. This is creation language. This is God, right, creating. John wants us to know that something's happening in Jesus. Early in the morning, first day of the week, this is new creation language. It's the first day of a forever. Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, where did you put Jesus' body? And he goes, Mary. And she's like, Jesus. There's this Genesis Three, one, two, three stuff going on right here in resurrection because what God wants us to know is that Jesus redeems us from that fallenness, from the curse, from the brokenness, from the disconnection. Jesus is the new Adam, and in him, everyone has life. Yep. So then, if everyone in Christ is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. Jesus redeems us from all of that Genesis 3 stuff jesus and we crushed the head of the serpent. that's point number four follow along with me if you can. god says to the serpent the offspring of eve will strike your head that's what he says genesis 3 that's the curse that the snake receives first john tells us that god's son appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil Rome, Romans sixteen twenty. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Remember, we were created royally divine beings to order the world out of disorder, to, to serve and protect creation. And now there's this additional problem that evil has infiltrated. And Jesus deals the death blow to Satan on the cross and in the resurrection, but then commissions us To be part of the crushing of the evil in the world. That's good news, y'all. Point five. I hope this is point five. I've lost track. The results of sin in us are shame and blame. And I think we live here all the time. In fact, almost maybe of anything that we've said today, this is going to be the reality for most of us that we are so full of shame and blame for lots of different reasons. The ways that we were raised, the cultures that we live in, our inability to provide, our inability to work, our inability to have meaningful connections, our inability to whatever. This is the result of what they did. But what Jesus wants us to know is that all who have faith in Jesus won't be put to shame. Or as we said last week, Romans 8, there isn't any condemnation anymore for those who are in Jesus Christ. One of the things that Jesus has done is removed the shame and we no longer need to live in a world where we just are blaming or being blamed all the time. Last point, I hope the world is still disconnected, dead, sick and sinful. You know that you've seen the news, you've seen it in your own family. We see it in our community when you drive down the street, but we are reconciled to God so that we can be helping to reconcile others. Big passage, and then we're done. If you have any questions, send them. I have gotten a few. All of these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Remember, disconnection between God, disconnection between one another, disconnection between creation, but God is reconciling us through Christ. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He has trusted us with this message of reconciliation, so we are ambassadors who represent Jesus. God is negotiating with you through us, and we beg you as Christ's representatives be reconciled to God. This is our new mission. This is our new direction. There was disconnection between God, between us, between us and creation, and God is now commissioning us to be agents of reconciliation that bridges those disconnections. This way, this way, this way. This is our vocation. This is our purpose. This is what Jesus has, and also stomping out evil, crushing it under our feet. It's a fourth one. It's a bonus one. It's the fun one. No. But if you ever get confused about what you're supposed to be doing, know that, that this is a picture of the cross, This is what the cross does for us. This beam tells us that we're reconciled to the Father. And this beam tells us that now we can be reconciled to one another. And we know that it was planted in the earth. And so we know that this reconciliation extends to all creation. And in Christ, we know that this is what we are called to do. Send your questions. If I don't know, I'll try to send them later in the week. And we will do our best to answer some now. I know I just gave you a master class in theology, so I know there was a lot of words. There's a lot of words there. Hmm. Did Adam and Eve lose some trust in God after they had eaten from the tree because nobody died? Great question. Remember, God said, surely on the day, on the day that you eat from it, you will die. And there's been a lot of, th- I'll, give you, I'll give you my two answers. Uh, probably the simplest answer is, sh- I think a lot of trust is broken from humans to God. I think that stuff like that is why they wanted to become godlike. Because there's an anxiety about us as humans that we want to control our own situations. And so I think trust was broken that way for sure. The real theological answer is that they did die that day, in that they couldn't live forever. And that there was a spiritual death because there was a spiritual disconnection from the Father. And that's how Christians have talked about it. And so they might not have died physically, biologically, but there was a spiritual death in being disconnected from the Father. But great question. I love that you're thinking about that in the text. Um... Does being made in God's image make us only capable of wisdom but not inherently wise? Oh, good question. Uh, I think in the in the, the Jewish traditions and the early Christian traditions, wisdom was something that you saw after. And so I don't know if they would assume that we were born wise. Wisdom was something that we, that we grew into. But there's obviously something about us that makes us different than other creation, right? We can talk... We can sing. We can create. And so there's something there. But true wisdom, the wisdom of God, is something that we grew into. I don't know if that's helpful to part of your question. Um, but I appreciate it. Um, These last ones are telling me that we got to do some housekeeping. Okay. Here's my spiritual practice for you this week. As we think about this passage, what I would love for you to live into, uh, to take this home, is that I would love for you to pray the Lord's Prayer every week, this every day this week. Because it has some stuff in it that I think resonates with what we just talked about. It's on the back of your bulletin if you want the words, but identifying who our Father is praying that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, this is what we're talking about here because we know that what is happening on earth is not God's will at this moment. Um, We pray that he would forgive us our sins, and we also pray that we would forgive those who sin against us. We need God's help in doing that, which I think is going to remove or at least help us with that natural desire to blame. If we're praying about our own faults and our own issues and our own hang-ups, And we're also praying for us to get help to forgive others that'll circumvent some of that blame stuff and then deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation, which feels very apropos for what we just talked about. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this story. I pray that it'd be a helpful framework for us to view the world. That things are broken and disconnected, and we see it everywhere, not only in our own selves, but in the relationships around us, in the systems around us, in the institutions around us. It feels like brokenness permeates our world. So, would you help us to see this story as a framework for why things are broken? But would you help us to see the elements of hope in them? That the serpent's head would be crushed, that God is gracious commutes our sentence, clothes us, does not curse us, but promises to redeem us, and does so in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we come now to the table, and we know that you promised to meet us here, and so we pray that in this cup and in this bread, you would be present to begin in us and to continue in us a journey towards you, a journey towards being reconciled with you. And as we all do it together, Lord, I pray that it'd be a wonderful picture that we are being reconciled this way as well, between us as a community, as people, as brothers and sisters in you. Would your Holy Spirit help us to do that work of reconciliation, not only in our own lives, but in the people around us. And may we be a force for good a reconciling force that bridges the disconnection that is light and salt to those around us, all by the power of your Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in us. We say these things in Jesus' name. And would you pray with me the Lord's Prayer when it comes on the screen? It says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.